Um, I'm very pleased to introduce you to uh, Al Brown. Um, I, I was, didn't check with him what I'm allowed to really say about him. He's a man of mystery. Uh, but he's been a visiting research fellow with CTW uh, for some time because of the work that he's been doing. Um, and we consider him to be um, a research fellow at CTW now. But he is now embedded, if you like, in the sort of thinking that we're doing. Um, he has been involved in a number of areas of conceptual development uh, in defence. Uh, including areas like the integrated review, multi-domain integration, the integrated operating concept, uh, and indeed the multi-domain battle. So plenty of things for us to think about. Uh, and these um, areas he's going to help us with uh, thinking through today. Uh, it's got an interesting title, Integration of Godlots Factor. So we'll come to that in just a moment why you call it that. Um, but just to explain um, that, uh, you know, obviously, uh, like many military officers of his generation, um, he's done... Um, uh, the usual sort of rounds, we might say, uh, tours of duty, uh, to which we are grateful. But uh, he has been um, one of those rare individuals who um, thinks very deeply uh, about what defence means today and how new technologies are not only disruptive, uh, but also how they're being understood. Um, how we might, before we get to the point of application, how do we actually understand um, what these phenomena are, what implications uh, they carry. Um, I'm not going through all the list of things you know because I think you might well pick up on a couple of things about uh, UN uh, work, uh, Rusi, Alan Turing. So I suspect they're going to come up in the course of your conversation. I don't want to spoil it. Uh, okay, right, <laughs> um, so I shall leave leave that. But I, I'm curious to know your talk, integration, the Goldilocks factor. Uh, thank you very much for coming. I am amazed to see this many people uh, to talk on integration. I have done my level best to set myself up for failure, first of all, by talking about a thing that everybody loves to loathe. Uh, secondly, I know that people like me to talk about artificial intelligence, particularly weirdly for the last six months, about artificial intelligence ethics, so I'm not going to do that. Um, so uh, what I am talking about is integration and why it has a Goldilocks factor to it. Um, and I am... Um, by profession, I'm a staff officer, and that means I am powered by two things, which are caffeine and hatred. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's an array of publications that have appeared in the, you know, in the US, the UK, France, any number of uh, nations across the world. Uh, and integration is sort of the zeitgeist. Uh, and you might ask, well, what are they integrating? Uh, and the answer is everything. So every form of milical, uh, military endeavor on the one side and on the right-hand side kind of every agent of uh, uh, every lever that the state could hope to pull. Um, now, could things be better integrated? Yes, absolutely. And I will get out of the way now the idea that I am somehow attacking the idea that integration is a bad thing and we should go the other way, because that's obviously nonsense. Um, but it's this word. This is the word that bothered me slightly and therefore resulted in this talk. It's the idea that more is the answer in the sense that more is always the answer until everything is wired to everything else, until you have every, every ounce of data that exists. Um, and it leads to visions like this, and there's nothing critically wrong with them, in the sense on the left you have every platform wired to every other platform, and it's sending every ounce of data to every other platform that it can do, so that you have this universally informed military force. And that is also tied into uh, a state, here we see kind of Russia, for example, but it doesn't really matter, and it's using trade, and it's using... Um, sort of non-military activities uh, and then the space and uh, nuclear weapons and all of it is linked seamlessly together and there's a reason that people sort of think that way and then you get to this idea which is that if everything is interconnected that you have everything monitored, uh, monitored measured and metricized 
uh, then it all links together and you have two things. One is this tidal wave of information that risks overwhelming you, which is a realistic threat uh, proposition, but it also is seen as an opportunity uh, to create this sort of environment where you can know everything and you can therefore orchestrate uh, the perfect world that you want to, uh, ideally with some sort of godlike move that enables you to orchestrate everything even before you've started. Uh, so idea one is the fragility of the glass battlefield. Um, now, it's not unreasonable for lots of people to have formed this idea of perfect orchestration through massively surveillance, or massive surveillance and information, um, because this guy had a really, really bright idea about this. So that's uh, von Neumann. Uh, if you know anything about computers, the word von Neumann architecture would just mean this is why we have computers. To, uh, and explicitly, one of the things he was seeking to create when he created the first set of computers, amazingly, was weather control. It's in the list of things that he wanted to create. Uh, why? Because von Neumann knew that the tiny changes in initial conditions can massively shift how a system performs in the long run. Uh, and therefore, his idea was that humans are too simple to be able to cope with all the fluid dynamics that are involved. Ergo, we have a computer that does the crunching. We'll find the point of balance. Those in the military will think schwerpunkt and other such terms. Uh, and that will let us tip the system into new modes of our, our liking. And then Edward Lorenz comes along and ruins it. Uh, now, he was working on one of the first sets of computers, that, as imagined by von Neumann, um, and he ran a simulation and then went back and re-put it in, and there was a tiny change in the initial conditions, and very soon the whole weather structure was completely different. And on that afternoon, he realised that long-term weather forecasting was dead. Um, now, there's a, another stage to that that's worth explaining slightly more, which is on the, on the screen here, what you see are a, a row of imaginary buoys on the surface of water. Um, and there we have all the water. And so if you had a simulation that was able to create, you know, understand uh, all the wave properties, it would take the readings from those boys and be able to predict into the future what the waves might look like because it's actually a physics system and is therefore codifiable. Um, your problem is when something happens in the gap between the sensors. So in my hypothetical example, someone's thrown a rock between the two and now you have a big new wave. Now you and I will know looking at this screen that the path those waves forge forevermore will be different. But the point is for the system, that's linked to these boys, it can never know. And to its perception, there is no difference between that and this at that moment. So your ability to orchestrate that perfect battlefield is going to be foiled by the gap in between the sensors. So Lorentz spotted that any area can be the point at which chaos boils forth from. And our other problem is that you can't have infinitely arrayed sensors of infinitely small space covering all of the situations that you have. Um, one of the other reasons we tend to think about orchestration in a particular way is we have uh, classic examples like AlphaGo here. Now, look at that board. What's key about that board? There are no gaps between where the pieces are. So you can have systems that are playing something like um, StarCraft or whatever, where you have hidden elements of data. But what you don't have in something like AlphaGo is you don't have the go between the gap or the, the god of chaos between the gaps, for one of a better description. And this is another useful idea because it takes you to the, the premise that some computer models are doing emulations rather than simulations. So Go is not being simulated here. Go is being played here. There is fundamentally no difference between what AlphaGo is playing as a game and Lisa Doll. The fact that a human is moving the counters around is irrelevant. The game is being played by the machine. Now, that will apply for some systems we want to use machine learning tools for, but it won't apply necessarily for some simulations. Um, now, we talked a bit before about something that you'll have recognized as chaos theory. Um, chaos theory obviously has the, the butterfly effect, and that's dependent on sensitivity in initial conditions. Now, most people don't know that the uh, chaos butterfly 
has a less media-savvy cousin, uh, which is the hawk moth. Now, the chaos hawk moth is similar to the chaos butterfly, but the difference between the two is that the hawk moth, um, or the hawk moth effect, is where there's sensitivity in the model that you're creating, and minor changes in the model produce wildly different outcomes, even where the initial conditions that you're feeding in don't. So uh, I would strongly recommend looking at Erica L. Thompson from London, London Math Labs. But the example is you could have exactly the same initial conditions, but tiny tweaks to the model that you're creating will give you wildly different propositions. And they can be infinitesimally small. Um, we have another problem, which is that not only do we need to put the things for a system that enable it to see, but we can't see what we've learned to see. Now, for those of you who clicked on the little clickbait thing that might have got you here, um, this is where we get to the cats. Um, so Rob has heard me talk about this before. But um, uh, this is from a work by Donald Hoffman. And he took some cats and he raised them in this very weird environment where the one set of cats was raised in an environment where they could only see horizontal lines. Another set of cats was raised in an environment where they could only see vertical lines. And this is the result. So that cat, it can see, obviously, the rod held horizontally. But there is nothing in the reward system that allows neurons to form to let it to see in the vertical. And there's, the drama is that there's nothing special about that cat. It's, not, you know, it's been raised in a really weird environment. But the idea that you have to be trained to see a thing, or any system has to be trained to see a thing, whether it's a human, a machine learning system, or an organization, remains true of its ability to then detect something later on um, to show that these things apply. Um, if you train a machine learning system only on dogs, it will detect no muffins in this picture. Um, uh, and then there are classic case studies that we look at from an organizational perspective. So the McNamara fallacy is a good one. McNamara comes out of Ford, he arrives in, um, in his defense department job, uh, and he's all about the metricization and the measurement of the Vietnam War, and is convinced for ages that victory is coming his way because the metrics let him see it that way. But, and it's beautifully described here by a man whose surname I always mumble on the left, Jan Kolovich, it's that third bullet, isn't it? The third step is to presume that which, uh, that which can't be regularly measured is, um, isn't really important and is therefore blindness. So the same problem is true in any organisational system sense as well. Now, that might all seem very distant from you, but it happens to you every day. Uh, this is a drop-down menu. You will have run foul of this sometime in your life. Uh, for example, this computer is incapable of seeing that you want to fly with EasyJet. It's simply not a tool that it has that it can get from you in the elective way of seeing your preferences that it has developed. Um, and I'll keep coming back to why these things keep repeating. So they're, they're systemic issues. They're, they're issues of systemic theory and chaos theory that replicate again and again and again. Um, uh, and we can do it to you now. Um, so hopefully you'll be able to see one set of paper plates the right way up, one set upside down. I'll give you a second to have a look at that. Um, and the problem with that is, of course, there's fundamentally no difference whatsoever to the picture. What's happening to those of you who can see it two ways, and this won't apply to everyone, is that you have what's called a prior. So you have learned to see a particular way. And your brain has told you that the shadow belongs on one particular way for a plate that is the right way up, and one way for a plate that is the wrong way up. And it might even have told you that the shadow sits on the bottom of the picture. And so you have learned to see it. So you actually see it in your brain as upside down or the right way up. And the way that you can tell that this is a neurological uh, limitation as much as anything else is it's not possible to see the plates in both orientations at the same time. You can't look at one of the pictures 
and simultaneously see it upside down and the right way up at the same time. You'll experience this flick in your brain where it went from one to another. Um, but that is how you have learned to see and it codifies what you are capable of seeing. Uh, the same could be said for this one. So most people will look at this and hopefully you'll all see three colours, maybe some of you are colourblind. But of course you know it's a trick because the balls are the same brown colour. What has happened is your brain has learned to see uh, what it expects the change in the wavelength of light striking an object coming back to you is as a representative colour. So it doesn't see what's there, it sees what it considers to be useful to you. And this is systemically true, um, but it comes with problems. Uh, so what a system is trained to recognise how optimised it is to specific types of information over others and what its natural focus of attention is are often not proactively selected choices but accidental defaults. Worse still, because they offer no associative prompt, what a system is blind to is typically reviewed infrequently. Sometimes this is only triggered by a post-mortem or in inquests after the event, which is obviously when it's suboptimal. So every choice you make about how you or any system you're creating perceives the world is necessarily a choice about what you're going to choose to be blind to as well. And again, that will sound quite arcane, but attention is an attentional, unapologetic discriminator. It asks what's relevant right now and gears you up only to notice that. Um, and for example, you would have been listening to my voice um, and hopefully doing that rather than listening to the faint drone you can hear from the lights. You probably didn't notice that you could hear it until I mentioned the faint drone. And even if you can't hear the faint drone because your hearing shot away, you probably didn't notice where the chair was pressing into your back until I mentioned it just now. And then when I mentioned just now, you probably, even as you were thinking about that, didn't think about, can I feel the tongue on the roof of my mouth? You weren't conscious of any of those things, is my guess, until you had a prompt to do so, because attention causes you to have a discriminatory effect in how you process information. And this is always true of systems. Um, and it sounds fairly absurd, but you can watch somebody here who's giving directions and 50% of people don't notice when they pull that door trick that the person they started giving directions to is not the person they finished on because who they're talking to is not the focus of that. Uh, I strongly recommend uh, Googling Daniel Simmons' website. You can see the monkey business solution and loads of stuff in that. Um, uh, and again, this is a thing where I have given you biological examples but you could go to the world of machine learning and you would find a whole array of research that's looking at uh, tensors and other forms of attention discriminator in a way of saving processing power, uh, improving how those systems work, but necessarily come at a cost in terms of what they then sacrifice to do it. And I don't think I really probably need to explain where you've come across an organization that doesn't have attention. Um, you can just watch the news. Um, now, there's another way of thinking about the why is that? Why, why, does, why are systems so often like this? Uh, and there's a fundamental point about truth and advantage, and they're not necessarily the same thing. In fact, Colonel Nathan R. Jessup would have screamed at you, you can't handle the truth, and in a courtroom he was wrong, but if he was an evolutionary biologist, he would have been right. Um, so this is the mantis shrimp. The mantis shrimp it has the most complex vision system in the world. Uh, you and I have long, medium, and short wavelength cones in the back of our eyes. The mantis shrimp has 22 different types of receptors. It can see polarisation, it can see rotation of polarisation, circular polarisation, infrared, ultraviolet, anything and everything. Um, the dog has a much better sense of smell than you, but only two cones, so worse perception than us. The dog is an animal which is a predator. Its ability to detect prey is fundamentally linked to its ability to be a successful species, to reproduce, adapt and survive. So why has the dog not got 22 of these cones? 
and it's because there's an energy cost to whenever you do that. Um, that's uh, an example, uh, but actually has been backed up by maths. So this is work by Donald Hoffman, uh, and what they were doing here is Donald Hoffman worked in game theory, and you have two different types of truth for the things they put through their game theory programs, and then you have something that sacrifices truth, so it accepts less data in order to be more efficient at gathering reward. And you can see the drift in all of the models. Uh, and again, we'll go back to you. Um, so it's also worth understanding in that terms of blindness and your inability to see your own blindness or any system's inability to see its own blindness, let's have a look at the disaster that is the human eye. So on the image there, you can see a two. Obviously, it goes through the lens. And at the back, you've got a nice clear uh, mirror that's, or a mirror image that's replicated allows it to focus. Um, features of the eye that make it a disaster in that sense are that is the right focal length. If you come at an angle, you don't have the same focal length. Your ability to produce the right image around there is poor. But that's also why most of your cells are at the back of your eye and not around here. You also have a blind spot. Um, so what does that mean? There's your focus. The well, point of focus is you're looking straight down the road. And that's what you think you see when you're driving, because your mind either fills in the rest or tells you not to pay attention. You don't notice you're not looking at a thing because you're not looking at a thing. That's what a replication of the eye's focal activity looks like as you're looking straight ahead. This sort of seems fine, a bit dangerous off to the sides. And this is why your eyes flip around all over the place. And then off to the side as you glance at that car, suddenly you realize that the vision off to the side is straight ahead of you as you're looking right is relatively terrible. But it's not your lived experience because there's no value in presenting that truth to you as an organizing construct driving the car. So your brain doesn't do that. Um, here's another bit, so going back to the blind spot. Uh, you can see here someone's mapped the left eye. They've put where the blind spot is about 10 degrees to the left of your point of vision. And you can kind of see where they've mapped the fading out as well. I would invite you to go home and try and see what your blind spot looks like later. You'll have to cover one eye and you can find things like this on the internet. And there'll be a row this works for because of the distance you're at. But if you look at the blue bird on the left uh, and you cover your left eye, and I'll be interested to see how many people have the balls to try this in the room, whether they look stupid. Um, you will, so at some point, if you're the right distance away, that red bird will disappear. Just Google bird's blind spot and you can find this and try it at home. And it's interesting to see what happens as well from your perspective. Because you don't suddenly have this black spot that appears. What happens is the blue line seems to carry on. It's not very clear and the sky looks like it sort of fills it in a bit. But you'll just suddenly become aware of the fact it doesn't work very well. And you can do other things as well. If you want to know how small your area of perceptive vision is, um, if you stick your hand out and you stare at this nickel in the middle, you'll find that you can count the lines here without moving your eye and your fingers. But by the time you get up to these ones at the end, you're not quite sure if it's three or four. Um, so the area that you actually perceive is really small, and it's largely true for most systems because of the energy cost. So what the advantage is that helps you be gain competitive advantage is the right balance of abstraction and detail. You need to know enough detail so that you can tackle your problem properly, but you need enough abstraction so that you're not wasting energy needlessly. There's another way of thinking about this. So you can think of any agent that makes a decision, be that machine, organization, or human, as an agent that's making a decision. It has a lens through which it sees the world, which is built up by all the prior, so all the lessons it has learned up to this point and how it's constructed. And through that, it must see the right amount of information in order to gain competitive advantage. Um, we'll come back to that model in a minute. Um, to really hammer home a point, the simplest thought in your body involves only three neurons, and it doesn't involve your brain. Uh, if you've ever reached out and touched a hot eye, and you'll find your hand snap back, and you probably said to yourself, I'll put my hand away because I, you know, pain it burnt. Uh, that's not what happened. The simplest uh, thought in your body involves three neurons, and then it goes into your spine. The first neuron 
basically works on sort of proteins detecting heat, sends a message, second neuron relays, and it goes to the upper muscles in your arm, and then you get a snatch away response. The reason you have both this and the pain response is to give you two different reward functions. The first one is because the longer you leave your hand on the hot plate, the greater the amount of damage. So speed is the reward function you want. But any number of times doing that isn't really a very effective trainer to stop you doing it again in the first place because it's stupid. So you have pain. The pain function actually arrives a lot later than the hand reflex, but they're put together in your head in a different way. So quite often we will end up integrating things that have different reward responses to do different functions that will feel like part of the same system. So integration isn't mindlessly wiring everything together. Integration has to be about purpose. Uh, taking it away from the biological back to the machine learning world, this is Max Tegmark, who was looking at the theoretical largest artificial intelligence you could have. And his point was, intelligence, uh, for intelligent information processing system, going big is a mixed blessing. On the one hand, going bigger lets it contain more particles, which enables more complex thoughts. On the other hand, this slows down the rate at which you can have truly global thoughts, since it now takes longer for the relevant information to propagate to all of its parts. So we've covered the biological, we've covered the mechanical, now we can cover the people. There's the UN, and there's three people making a decision. I don't really need to point out which of those two is going to be quicker. But I also don't really need to explain to you that if you wanted a global uh, a solution for the globe, you're going to have to have that level of complexity in the top. What does that mean for integration? Well, it means that you have to disaggregate for victory. You have to parcel up the parts of your system to do specific jobs and then feed on the right information to the rest of the system not just assume everything needs to know everything and that everything has to have the same sort of cognitive processing. Um, this is the Archbody in Star Trek, the Borg. Arguably, if all of these principles from other bright people that aren't me are true, these people would have been useless because their whole point is that they're homogenous and that they're all wired together. So you would have had one lens of seeing all of space uh, and they would have been incredibly slow. In fact, they move like zombies because they kind of are space zombies because they would be incapable of reacting quickly and efficiently to those problems. And again, that goes back to, you know, is that sometimes the UN? Yes, it is. How does it work? Well, when it has subcommittees, when it has experts that do things to it and present back to the group, who then reference it and decide whether there's something in that particular field that's going to cause a different problem. So we're back to some of those lenses, those decision makers, and passing on the right information. In terms of passing on information correctly, it's not necessarily just what you think is important that matters. It's what the tacit knowledge of the two actors is. So if you imagine the sort of lenses that see the world, if they completely overlap, you can pass on a tiny amount of information and one system will know from that trigger, you know, I know he's going to know what I mean when I say this single word. It's going to promote a whole response. But against that, it also means that we have a very, very similar way of seeing the world. And it's why you end up with organisations that are in favour of um, sort of cognitive diversity, for example, trading funds, they like to have lots of different viewpoints because it will allow them to interpret the world through lots of different lenses. Um, again, examples always help. So here on the parade square, you can have a single word of command that orchestrates vastly complex manoeuvres of human beings, but it's because they all have incredibly overlapping tacit knowledge of a high degree that's been invested in beforehand. Very similar with the RAF, very similar with surgeons, and again, waving of flags in naval vessels goes back to the times of yore. So, there's a Goldilocks premise to how integration works. You have to find that optimum. Um, you might start wondering what that sort of means. And again, there are other ideas that are really useful. So this is Rosh Ashby. Uh, he came up with this theory of requisite variety. And it's, it sounds incredibly complicated. But in its simplest form, you can think of it as, if you want a system to control another system, this system has to be at least as complex as how it interlocks with the thing its target is. 
Now that sounds really difficult and abstract, and I probably lost half of you, but I can show you a picture and you'll kind of instinctively understand. So early computer games, somebody runs, jumps, moves left, right, maybe has shoot something. And because they're very simple, you end up with a very simple controller. You couldn't play most of the modern games on that kind of controller without having some sort of weird, I need to go up three times, down twice, left, right, right four times. So you end up sacrificing speed on all sorts of things. So you end up with more complex control systems when you're trying to control something inherently more complex. Um, that might lead you to think that the right answer is just to have um, as many control levers as you possibly can. I just need to look up a bit of text here. Uh, in order that you don't use them until actually now I need this lever. Um, but that in itself has problems. And this is the P-38. It was extremely successful in the Pacific. They sent to the European theatre where it was escorting bombers over long range. Uh, and it did really badly compared to what they were expecting. And there was a series of angry letters of increasing rage that went from the US to the pilots who were flying these things, which is a bit harsh because they're being shot down. Um, asking, why is this all going so badly wrong? Are you just inept? What the hell? Um, uh, and eventually, uh, Colonel Hal J. Rao, uh, leader of the 20th Fighter Ring, wrote this back. And he described the changing conditions uh, that the plane was able to cope with because it had such an array of different control levers um, that meant it could now operate in high altitude, long range, cold conditions, which is what is, wasn't what it was doing in the Pacific, but the consequence of that. And he said, uh, as soon as a P-38 pilot comes into a situation where he must engage in dogfighting, he must increase power to get rid of the external fuel tanks, get on his main fuel, uh, so he reaches down, turns two stiff, difficult gas switches to main, turns on the drop tank switches, presses the release button, puts the mixture to auto-rich, two separate and clumsy actions, increases his RPM, increases his manifold pressure, turns on his gun heater switch, which he's had to do to save the battery because otherwise the plane will stall halfway through the flight. Uh, at which he must feel for and cannot possibly see. Uh, he turns on his combat sight switch and he is now ready to fight, at which point he's invariably been shot down. <laughs> so every time you add a control lever, you add a training burden, and every time that control lever must be added, used, you're adding a time burden if that's a significant deviation from normal action. Um, so this looks like a slightly ridiculous picture, but this is... Uh, I strongly recommend going and watching David Silver's talks on reinforcement learning. So David Silver, behind AlphaGo and some of the best stuff in DeepMind. Uh, and his point really is simply that you have observation, but you need to build it. It goes into an agent that makes a decision and does an action. And the control system will have to have the right level of complexity to be able to couple with the environment correctly. And then from that, you will gain a reward. And what the reward then does, if it's an adaptive system, is it changes both of these. So not only do you need to think about how you're integrating the system, in the process of doing it, you need to examine what your real reward functions are, not necessarily what you just say your reward functions are. Um, and they've had a paper out, which again I would recommend, and his premise, which got loads of stick in the artificial intelligence community, was that you can reach any form of intelligence simply through the correct application of reward. And it's interesting to watch people to argue about architectures and all those sorts of stuff, which Silver and Co. argue can be reached through having reward functions which generate those architectures. Because it's not really a new idea. If you think about all the intelligences we experience anyway in the world, they all arrived here by the reward function of natural selection in the first place. Um, so definitely go and watch David Silver's lectures and kind of think about the simplicity of systems and then all the chaos that just boils out of this simple idea. Um, now, I've shown you this picture a few times, but if you're integrating anything, let's imagine this isn't necessarily a person, but it could be a technology, it can be an organisation, it can be any of those things. 
they all exist within systems to systems, so it's always going to be inherently complicated. So your reward system matters in the sense of whatever subsystem A is doing, if it's adapting or you are adapting it, you're going to change it with respect to reward function, but that reward function has to serve the rest of the organisation as a whole. And if you didn't think that was complicated enough, you now have to throw in time as well. And I'll give you uh, one last um, idea uh, to play with, and this is the idea of pace layering. Now, this is really interesting. I think it's one of the places this was first dreamed up independently was Brian Eno's music studio, of all places. Um, but you will find it in architecture, you will find it in neurology, you'll find it in a bunch of different places. But Eno's one is a fun one, so we'll do that. Uh, and his idea is that things run at different paces, that they're interlinked. The idea that you can have a system, everything works on the same clock, the seconds are the same for everything, and all systems work on that pace, doesn't really work. So fashion was the argument that it changes constantly, it's this chaotic thing, it's turbulent, it's bugling but there's no way that fashion can exist without the commerce to support it. You can't buy clothes that nobody makes. You can only buy them from shops that exist. And then in that sense, fashion does provide information which changes how commerce works. So if you are unaware of fashion and you're in a clothing line, you won't ever have a commercial business that lasts very long. So there's an interlink between the two. So you can kind of think of them as a turbulent interface. And then commerce also drives infrastructure. And we're seeing that now. You're seeing the closing of the house streets because commerce has changed and it's changing where people are buying things. Um, and then infrastructure ties into governance, which then leads back to culture, uh, and then fundamentally nature. And you can imagine each of these layers moving at a different pace. Now these are indicative layers, and you will find all sorts of things when you peel back the onion of whatever organization you're looking at. But just going back to kind of the idea that infrastructure and governance have an interrelationship. This is a picture of Boston in 1860 on the left, and here it is in 1981. Uh, and only one building is the same. But what is noticeable, or notable about the picture, is that every single road is the same. So the infrastructure changes, but the thing that determines where the roads go isn't an infrastructure problem, it's a governance problem. So it, it, it goes at a different rate. So you can think about these things, I've, I've picked that one there, but you could also think about it in the biological way. So here we have priors, so what you have learned previously has shaped priors that determine what your vision system is. And now when you see this, you will know more about the picture, so you will tend to interpret it differently in the future. Um, it occurs in the brain at a different level as well. So as I tell you new things, your neurons will fire differently to record that, record that information. But that isn't the sum total of how the brain adapts. So this is a terrible picture, uh, but it's from uh, Live Wired by David Eagleman, which I'd recommend. And this is uh, scans of the change in brain structure of different musicians. So as your brains are learning things electronically, they're also releasing chemical trails that tell you where to grow new neurons. And you can see it in violinists who end up with this sort of omega-shaped twist here on one side, because that finger is significantly busier than this one. But pianists, because they have equally busy fingers, end up with a wholly different brain structure. So the idea is that you actually end up with these things occurring in you know, organisational systems, biological systems, they exist everywhere. Um, uh, so I would leave you with four things to take away the next time someone starts talking to you about integration, which will just annoy whoever you're talking to because they'll want a nice simple answer. But you have to decide what is your problem in your environment. Is it amenable to that glass battlefield chess-like god move? And there will be lots of things there that are, and in those instances, you should absolutely use deterministic planning structures, you should absolutely use machine learning with a high degree of confidence, you should actually accidentally use a highly procedural uh, organisational structure. But if your system is prone to complexity or chaos 
or there are a number of reasons why that first model doesn't fit, you will need to have the, the Goldilocks form of integration. You need to have the right amount of truth going through your system. You need to balance the amount of tacit knowledge in the different systems that are communicating. You need to balance how much information is processed from one to another. Um, you need to have the right diversity as well. So you need to have enough lenses looking at your problem that are suitable to your problem. If, you're not, if your job, for example, is automatic number recognition for the police, you don't need neurological diversity in how the number plate system is read because that's, one lens is great. It works really well. If you're starting to think about more complex things like how we organise social policy for government, you absolutely need an array of different ways of looking at the same problem. Um, and the final one is how we look at, and I think this is probably the thing that we across organ organisations tend to do worse, how we look at the different tempo of feedback that occurs within a situation. Quite often, we will tend to do things which we tell ourselves are about time but aren't, in the, or about the design of time. So if presented with a complex problem, it is common for people to plan for the length of time they have been given to do the planning, realise the time is up, announce, I have a solution. But what they don't have is, I have a solution that I'm confident in. They have, this is the solution I have reached in the available time frame. And then they might be working within a structure that says, now I do understanding, now I do orchestration, now I do action, and then later I will come back and I will do some sort of post-after-action review, and then I will start again. And if that is really monolithic, you aren't necessarily thinking in the course of analysing the problem, which bits of the system, which bits of this problem are going to change really fast. If the thing changes really fast, faster than my ability to turn around, then that's not great. If you start thinking, I have to do everything at the speed of the fastest component in the target, you're going to be stuck in this cycle that finds itself choosing to be blind to the long-term effects. You will have said, I'm really interested in how mayflies move but you'll never work out how mayflies evolve because the time frame over which they look isn't the time frame in which you're looking at them. So there's loads going on there. Um, I'm going to do two plugs. One, if you're interested in any of this batshit craziness and want to go further, uh, I would strongly recommend um, uh, Colin Williams is doing a colloquium on uh, cybernetics. If you want to look into the history of this and know more uh, on the 23rd, he's, um, his email is at the bottom there. Uh, either take a photo now or come and find me. Uh, and one other thing which you should see it's not out now, uh, but coming out hopefully in the next six months is definitely the most anticipated book um, <laughs> affecting war in the future, uh, which will be out probably available through CCW and definitely available through um, me uh, in about six or so months' time, where there'll be lots of other bright people saying more intelligent things than me. Right. My brain is teaming. I also warning you know people if you go to a class that um, you know once you're taught something new, uh, physiologically you've damaged somebody in front of them because actually their, their brain has changed dimension. While people gather thoughts, can I just steal an opportunity to yes. uh, pick up on one one sort of idea? Because you've told us a lot there about how important framing is, how important uh, diversity of experiences actually are. The more more diverse groups we have to solve complex problems, sounds like better, even though you're opposed to the idea of more. But one of the things that immediately struck me is that, as a species, we're a bit rubbish at learning from mistakes, and, and that troubles me. So if I, you know, give you, let, let me give you a, a solid empirical example, because that's a bit abstract. So um, when the Mongols were busy invading sort of Central Asia, uh, they came across Kiva, and they knew that Kiva had a really decent-sized military force, um, quite mobile, actually, 
uh, and uh, they could move this mobile force out from the city along the Amudaria River, and they could basically hold you know, the, this river line quite successfully. And the Mongols figured out that they just needed to use a particular device, and it's called slow, slow, quick, quick. Those of you who know Eurasian history will know what happened. Um, they moved in from the northern direction very, very, very slowly. They knew the Kievans would pick up on it. They were doing this perception thing. They could observe it. The eye was doing its thing. And then uh, they drew away. The Kievans were congratulating themselves about how wonderfully they'd seen off the Mongols. Then, um, a few months later, um, the Mongols came in very, very slowly from the south. And uh, the Kievans again congratulated themselves. They moved out you know, in, in array, and, and the Mongols moved away. And so while the Kievans were now sort of committed to these two different locations, and weeks had gone by, and they were busy feasting and writing poetry to each other about how wonderful they'd done. Then the Mongols hit them in under 24 hours. They crossed the river in an unexpected location and did a sort of two-stroke, you know, double-tap sort of hit and overthrew Kiva and destroyed it. Now, everyone else in the Middle East saw what had happened, but nobody learned the lesson. So the Mongols did it again and again and again. Now, that's pretty existential and catastrophic. You've got examples that are very personal, and, and we have made ourselves of repeated the same mistake several times over. What has gone wrong with us as a species that we seem to be unable sometimes to learn from our own experiences or from these sort of things? So I would, I, my instinctive response would be, I think that there are two, two factors that relate to that. One is that when it all goes well, it tends to be unremarkable and therefore isn't recorded. So every time the Mongols had sort of turned up and oh, there was a force there, They'd have probably gone, well, this was one of the slow ones, don't tell anyone, uh, and, yeah. and left. Uh, and it would also not appear to be as remarkable as the destruction of Keeper. And so there's this tendency whereby catastrophic mistakes are retold as tales more eloquently and more interestingly. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a kind of a sampling bias problem in that to an extent. Yeah. I think the, the other thing that quite often happens, and this goes back to the idea of reward functions. Um, so, um, oh, what's he called? Robert Miles um, is a, a guy who's got a YouTube channel about AI safety, um, and he talks about meta and MESA objectives and reward functions. And one of, sort of the classic problems is it's that kind of um, monkey's paw thing where, or the sorcerer's apprentice, I've asked it to do something, and oh bugger, that's what it's done. Um, and so you can get that in systems where you, you tell somebody you want something, and, and again, if you were to jump across to an organised organisational perspective, you'd get to things like Godwin's Law, where you know the we've said to someone that so uh, was it Minister of Health said that they didn't want to see anybody wait longer than 24 hours for a dental appointment, right. um, and the only way they could measure that was by counting the number of appointments that occurred 24 hours after the booking. What that actually resulted in as a reward function inside dental centres was receptionists refusing to take any bookings longer than 24 hours out because now they're going to get a negative reward, they're going to get punished for it. But that's not actually the same as making more dental appointments available. So you'll end up, I think sometimes our inability to learn is tethered to an inability to correctly regard what reward functions are. And you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways you can look at institutions as well and say, you know, that person is engaging in truly appalling politics. But on the other hand, they're really successful within their own political party. Yeah. So under what criteria are they judging whether this is a, a catastrophe or a mistake? Yeah. And it might even be to the state where, you know, from a personal advantage point of view, it gets them all the toys they want, all the platitudes and 
and yet be bad for the system of which they're part and they're purporting yes. to act in the benefit of. And quite often, they'll be blind to that mistake that they're making. Well, I, mean, I like that thing about blindness, and that's really important. So the reward function and selection bias, that's where we're all going wrong, folks. So let's, you know, let's <laughs> start with it all there.